Sometimes when we come to a story like the one that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the immediate temptation is to dismiss it as one of those cute, quaint Bible stories for children. From infancy, we have heard the story of David and Goliath. Through the years, it has been a story that has charmed us and entertained us and even inspired us. It's a story that is loved by our children and adored by our grandchildren. And if we're not careful, we'll just simply see it as one of those simple childhood stories. It's one of the few Bible stories that seems to transcend pop culture. For even today in very secular circles, whenever there is an epic story of an underdog overcoming insurmountable odds, even people that never darkened the door of a church will regard it as a David and Goliath type of a story. And we hear the story and we think to ourselves, but what do we have to learn from a brash teenager who overcame all the odds and defeated a formidable foe? At the end of the day, we're adult people living in an adult world with adult problems, and we carry adult stress. What do we have to learn from a cocky teenager? And friend, while we might regard this story as one of our favorites from childhood, let me caution us that there is nothing about this story that's childish. Don't think that you are in familiar territory with foregone conclusions. Now, I think that today, God has something special, significant, and fresh to tell you from the story of David and Goliath. This morning, we continue our study entitled Chasing God's Heart, a study of the life of David. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I want to read in your hearing verses 20 to 50. If you're able and willing, will you please take your Bible and stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word as today I begin at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 20, and I'll conclude at verse 50. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp. The army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? 
And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. When what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not going to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to King Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, uh, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Philistines move, the Philistine moved closer to attack him, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking one of, one of the stones, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our story begins on the battlefield. The Israelite army had assumed their position on one hillside. Opposite them, the Philistine army had assumed their position on their hillside. A mile-wide valley was between them. This particular valley was about 14 miles to the west of Bethlehem. At the time of our story, Jesse, the father, was well advanced in years. He knew that three of his oldest sons had volunteered to fight for Israel. He called his youngest son, David, 
and said, tomorrow I want you to take some supplies to your brothers and the soldiers. See how the battle's going, and then come back and give your dear old man a good report. The next morning, David got up, he gathered all the things, and off he went towards the valley. By the time he got to the outskirts of camp, David could hear the war cry of Israel. He left the things with the keeper of the supplies. He made his way up the hill, and from that vantage point, he greeted his brothers. He could look down into the valley. It was in that moment that this mammoth of a man came out of the Philistine camp, walked down the hill into the valley, and shouted a defiant charge and challenge against Israel. The Bible tells us that this man was a massive specimen of brute strength. He was over nine feet tall. When I visualize this man, I see his shoulders as broad as a mountain range, his biceps like boulders, his thighs as large as tree trunks. We are told that this man's armor weighed 125 pounds. That's a significant amount of weight. That's the same size as a middle school boy. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. The tip of his spear, 15 pounds. David asked, who is that? And the answer came, that's Goliath, the Philistine champion from the ancient city of Gath. Apparently, uh, twice a day for 40 days, Goliath had been coming out and issuing the same challenge. Choose one of your men to come down and fight me, he said with a booming voice. If you win, we become your servants. If I win, all of you become our servants. As soon as he said it, all of Israel was gripped with fear and they scattered like schoolgirls. David engaged one of the soldiers in conversation. For the first time in the sacred script, David speaks in verse 26. He says, what is the reward to be given to the man who slays that giant? And who does that man think he is? For he comes and defies the armies of the living God. His question is twofold. What will be given to the Israelite who is victorious? And who is that man who comes to defy the armies of the living God. The other soldiers of Israel, they said, well, the king has put together an incentive plan. It's pretty good. For the one who kills Goliath will be given a great financial reward. Also, the king has said that he will give one of his daughters in marriage, and you know all the king's daughters. I mean, they are a bunch of hotties. And beyond that, the king has promised that the one who's victorious, neither he nor his family will ever pay taxes in Israel. That's a pretty good incentive plan, don't you think? You're going to get a lot of money, you're going to get a great wife, and you're never going to pay taxes. Pretty good incentive plan. But there were no takers. The soldiers said to David, have you seen that man? He's huge. And not just is he big? 
but he is a skilled warrior. The stories about Goliath are world known. I mean, he is a fighting champion from the ancient city of Gath. Nobody can go up against him. What I find very interesting is that both uh, David and the soldiers, they see the same scenario, but they see it from two completely different perspectives. It would appear that David comes at it by faith. The soldiers come at it by fear. The soldiers said, Goliath is so big, he'll surely kill us. And David, in so many words, said, Goliath is so big, I surely can't miss him. I mean, I could go up against him and I'll be victorious. I mean, who could miss a giant like that? Eliab, the oldest brother of David, heard David's conversation, pulled him aside. He said, what are you doing here? Listen, I know how conceited you are. I know how wicked your heart is. The only reason you came is just to see the battle and to stir up trouble. Oh, furthermore, how are those little sheep in the desert? Who'd you leave them with? Do you feel the jab of the comment from Eliab's lips when he says, where are those sheep and how are they doing? All you are is a shepherd boy. Now listen, from the day that Samuel came and anointed you and appointed you king of Israel, I've been scratching my head and you have been nothing more than conceited and arrogant. You have a wicked heart and David says can I not speak I mean all I'm doing is just telling you what I see this report of a confident cocky teenager who had come into camp made its way to the tent of King Saul and Saul summoned for David I can well imagine that The king's tent was on the top of the hill behind a barricade so that nobody could get to him. But David made his way up the hill and he gained an audience with the king. This is not the first time that David had ever met Saul. No, in the previous chapter, we are told that when the spirit of the Lord left Saul and rested upon David, that Saul no longer had a defense system against the demonic. And an evil spirit would come and torment King Saul. If you've been here very much over the last several years, you might have heard me make a statement that goes something like this. That I believe that for all of us who are in Christ, our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit so that the demonic cannot infiltrate, cannot penetrate, cannot get into your life, into your mind, into your heart. Why? Because your salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Paul says in his Ephesian letter. And I get that from a story like this one in 1 Samuel chapter 17. No sooner had the Spirit of the Lord left King Saul than he was defenseless. He could not put up a fight against the adversary and against the demonic. And and an evil spirit came and tormented his mind. Whenever he was about to lose his mind, the only thing that would soothe him was the melodious tune of a harp so King Saul said to his servants you go find the best musician in all of Israel their search led them to the little town of Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to the youngest son of Jesse David David was a shepherd boy and David was courageous but apparently he was also a masterful musician 
whenever the evil spirit would torment Saul, Saul would call for David. David would come and play his harp, and Saul would be soothed. David and Saul, they knew each other. This encounter of 1 Samuel chapter 17 is not the first time that David had stood before the king. So it wasn't surprising to Saul when David said, don't lose heart over this uncircumcised Philistine. I'll go fight him. And Saul began to laugh. You can't go fight him. You're a boy. You're courageous, a little cocky, but you're a boy. There's no way you can go and fight him. Have you seen Goliath? He's been fighting grown men since his youth. He is a champion from Gath. I mean, he is one who is so victorious. Did you see what he had for breakfast? His breakfast was bigger than you. He will devour you. He will eat you alive. There's no way you can survive against him. Saul just thought that what was standing in front of him was an arrogant teenager. You know, there are no arrogant teenagers who suffer from low T, are there? Every teenage boy I know has enough testosterone for all of us. It's because of that they feel they're invincible. Nothing's going to hurt them. Nothing's going to harm them. And so most uh, people, and, and Saul included, as he looked at David, he just thought David was just being a brash, arrogant, cocky teenager, thinking he could take the world by the tail and whip Goliath. You can't do this. You're just a boy. He will eat you for lunch. This conversation between David and Saul is significant in the Samuel narrative. Because if X marks the spot, then it's here at this conversation that you find the intersection between the descent of Saul and the rise in popularity and prominence of David. It's here where they crisscross. It's here where Saul is on his way down, David on his way up. It's right here in this conversation on this battlefield hillside in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Because the truth of the matter is this, if anybody should have faced Goliath, it should have been King Saul. He's the only one who has the shot of going toe-to-toe against the Goliath uh, champion from Gath. Uh, Saul is the only one. Now, I'm not insinuating that Saul was nine feet tall, but you do remember that Saul was chosen because he was head and shoulders above the rest. He might not have been nine feet tall, but Saul was a massive man. He was a tall individual. He was a skilled warrior. He was the leader of Israel. He was Israel's first king. If there's anybody who should have gone, it should have been King Saul. But instead, he says to David, you go. God be with you. Uh, Furthermore, how do you think you're going to survive? And David says, I've been keeping my father's sheep since I was a youngster. Whenever a lion or a bear came after one of the sheep, I followed it. When I rescued the sheep from its mouth and it turned on me, I destroyed that lion. I destroyed that bear. And the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is the same Lord who will deliver me from the hand of this uncircumcised Philistine. Go, Saul said. But before you go, uh, you probably should put on some armor. I don't have any armor. Well, here, use mine. 
He gave him a tunic, he gave him a sword, he gave him the armor, he gave him a helmet. David tried all that on. He began to walk around and he said, this, this is too cumbersome. There's no way. This doesn't fit me. Let me just do it the way I think I need to. He took off all the armor. He went down to the stream. He gathered five smooth stones. He put them in his shepherd's pouch. He grabbed a wooden slingshot. And off he went into the valley towards the battle line. Can you imagine the shock and the surprise to all of Israel when somebody finally broke ranks and ran down the battlefield? Can you imagine the anger of Eliab, the older brother of David, when he realized that it was David, the pipsqueak brother of his, that was making his way down? I mean, David was going and Eliab was beside himself. All of Israel was wondering what's going on. Even Goliath, he began to laugh. I think that when Goliath saw that wooden slingshot in David's hand, he said, are you going to throw a stick and want me to fetch like a dog? Are you coming at me just with a little video stick? I tell you what, I'm going to fetch your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then he began to speak vulgarity against David and David's God. I love the fact that David doesn't back down. He talks smack right back to Goliath. It is David who says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. God's going to give you into my hands, and today I'm going to cut your head off. And I'm going to give your carcass to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. In fact, not just yours, but all of the Philistines will be given over and killed. And everyone will know there is a God in Israel. Goliath ran towards the battle line. David also quickly ran towards the battle line. He reached in and grabbed one of those smooth stones. He placed it into his sling. He slung it over his head, flung it in the direction of the giant, and it landed squarely upon his forehead. It was one stone, one impact, one fatality. Goliath fell face, face down to the ground with a loud thud, probably registering a 7.2 on the Richter scale. And then David he goes up and he takes the sword of Goliath and he lops off the head of that giant. He hoists that decapitated head in the air. Now remember, this is a children's story, right? He hoists that decapitated head in the air as if that's a signal to all of Israel as they were watching spellbound with their mouths dropping, their eyes bugging. And when they realized that Goliath was dead, they ran down the hill, ran up the hill towards the Philistines. They killed them and the Philistines retreated, those that survived, all the way back to the ancient city of Gath. And God gave the victory to David that day without a sword or a spear in his hand. Just a slingshot and a stone. That epic story is a story that puts us on the edge of our seat regardless if it's the first time or the thousandth time that we've heard that story. And undoubtedly, you've heard a lot of sermons from David and Goliath. Most of the time, the punchline goes something like this. Goliath represents 
any and every obstacle in your life. And David teaches us how to overcome any and every Goliath in your life. That if you do what David did, you too, my friend, can slay the giants of your life and you can live a victorious Christian life. That's usually how the punchline of most sermons from David and Goliath tends to go. I can remember the most comical and, dare I say, most irresponsible rendering of this story I heard years ago at an outdoor community worship service at the beginning of a week-long festivity called the County Fair. I was pastoring in a small church in a small community where the county fair was the biggest deal that happened on the calendar each and every year. And the way the county fair got kicked off was that all the churches came together for a worship service. And I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was tremendous. I, along with everybody else, I took my seat in the grandstands there at the county fairgrounds. And I was there ready to hear God's word being proclaimed at the beginning of this local small town county fair. I didn't know the preacher that the community had invited to come, but it didn't matter to me. I was excited to hear a sermon. And so I went there with great anticipation. He stood up, the the invited preacher stood up and he preached about David and Goliath. And I thought, this is going to be great until... He likened David to the county fair. And he compared Goliath to the amusement park called Six Flags, which was about an hour from where we were living. And his punchline was something like this. I want to encourage you. Don't allow the Goliath amusement park Six Flags to douse or or diminish your enthusiasm for this local county fair. What you're doing is a great thing. I know you're an underdog. I know it's an epic struggle. I know that there are some times that you wonder, can we keep on doing year after year this county fair? And I have come today to tell you and encourage you, keep on doing the county fair. Don't allow the Goliath of Six Flags to douse your enthusiasm. I came to encourage you this afternoon. I can't tell you if anybody got saved that day, but I was appalled at the number of amens that came from the crowd. I got back in my car, and I went back to the house, and Jane Ellen asked me, well, how'd the worship service go? And I said, baby, you won't believe it. How have we gotten to the place where the story of David and Goliath is about an amusement park? I've heard other sermons about David and Goliath. And maybe like you, you've heard the one or something similar where a a detail of the story is pulled out and a spiritual truth is extrapolated from that detail and that's the whole summation of the sermon. I was listening to a sermon on David and Goliath and the preacher said, once again, you need to slay all the giants, all the obstacles Uh, in your life and the way you do it is like David you take five smooth stones and if you have those five smooth stones then you will be victorious against all your adversaries and all your obstacles and as I sat there listening I wondered what are those five smooth stones 
And the preacher said, if you're wondering what are those five smooth stones, let me tell you what they are. And I said, all right, great. This is going to be fantastic. The five smooth stones are the stone of worship and prayer and Bible reading, Bible study, and fellowship, and witnessing. If you do those five things, friend, you, like David, will have the strength to slay the giants in your life. And as I sat there listening, I thought to myself, truth be told, I only need to know what one stone is, because it only took one stone to slay the giant. So, preacher, can you tell me, was it the stone of worship, or was it the stone of prayer, or was it the stone of Bible study, or was it the stone of fellowship, or the stone of witnessing? I don't diminish that a Christian needs all those things in their lives, but how in the world do you get that from this story? And if you do get that from this story, just tell me, which one stone is it that that David reached for and grabbed, because I don't really care about the other four, because it only took one to slay the giant. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I I am not trying to throw a a dart at preaching because I, for one, will tell you preaching is hard. It, It is a challenge to understand God's word and then correctly apply God's word. And I'll be the first to tell you there are a lot of my own sermons that I listen to as I go back over the years, and they are laughable. I mean, what I stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, I'm not quite sure that the Lord saith. So I understand that there are times that we make mistakes because preaching is hard. But at its best, preaching needs to be able to communicate the truthfulness of God's word with such deadly accuracy as David did with his slingshot. So this morning, before I sit down, I I wanna attempt to hit the bullseye, or at least closer to the bullseye, of what is the meaning of this passage. I think that this story fits in uh, to the overarching story of David quite nicely. We have labeled this sermon series, Chasing God's Heart. It is said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. We have attempted to answer in this 10-week series, what does it mean to be a Christ chaser? What does it mean to be one who chases after the heart of God? We've offered up a couple of, of solutions or answers or possibilities to that question. Let me supply with one more this morning. I think that a person who chases after God's heart is an individual who has unwavering trust in the Lord. A person who chases the heart of God has unwavering trust in the Lord. David is described as a man after God's own heart. And this story helps to prove that. Eliab, his brother, uh, erroneously said, David, you have a wicked heart. You have a conceited heart. You as the reader know that's not true. That's what Eliab, the big brother of, of, of David, thinks. But God has said of David, he is a man after my own heart. And what does that mean? It means that David had unwavering trust in the Lord. He communicated this trust to the soldiers, to Saul, even to Goliath. It is David who said to the soldiers, who is this man, this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? His trust was in the living God. His trust was not in himself. David's trust was not in his ability David's trust was squarely placed upon the Lord. And he said to the soldiers, who is this uncircumcised Philistine from Gath who comes to defy the armies of the living God? 
he says to King Saul that the Lord who delivered me from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had unwavering trust in the Lord. And that tells us who a a God chaser is. Somebody who chases the heart of God is somebody who trusts in the Lord. And when David goes up against Goliath, we said it was smack talk, but it was sanctified smack talk. When he said, you come against me with sword and spirit and javelin, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. When we get done, everybody's going to know there is a God in Israel. And so David had unwavering trust in the Lord. You ask the question, where did this come from? Well, once again, in the text, there is a particular detail that if we pull on it, it seems to help the whole story come into focus. On several occasions, we are told of Goliath that he is a Philistine champion from Gath. A Philistine champion from Gath. A Philistine champion from Gath. Do you know anything about the ancient city of Gath? Following the great Exodus event, it is Moses who sent out 12 spies as they were coming close to the promised land. And Moses said to those spies, I want you to go and scope out the land. Come back and tell us what you see. All 12 of them went. They all took notes of what they saw. They all came back. Ten out of the 12 said, listen, the land is flowing with milk and honey, which as a boy I always thought that was gross. How can a land flow with milk and honey? But that's just an idiom, meaning that it is very fruitful and plentiful. It is a great place to live. It's a great place where there's a lot of vegetation. It is flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants living in that land. We look like grasshoppers to them. There's no way we can take them. We know what God's word tells us, that that belongs to us. That's our promised land, but the giants are too big. Only Caleb and Joshua came back, and they too said, yes, it is flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land of vegetation, and yes, there are giants in the land, but we believe that God has given us a promise, and the one who makes the promise makes good on the promise. They're giants, but we can overtake them. And it's Joshua who leads in the conquest. And if you read the story of the conquest, how Joshua led them into the promised land, you will discover that one of the ancient cities left standing was Gath. When David comes in 1 Samuel 17, when he learns that that giant named Goliath is from Gath, David says, that's a leftover giant. That's some of God's unfinished business. God's already given us his word and his promise that he'll destroy that giant. So so I'll take him. Don't lose heart. David had been to Sunday school. I mean, David remembered the stories that he had been raised on. The stories of the conquest and the deliverance. And David knew the city of Gath. He knew the inhabitants of Gath were left over giants. And you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, but preacher... David's not the only one in all of Israel's army who went to Sunday school. There had to be a lot of other soldiers that knew the stories of antiquity. There had to be a lot of other soldiers that knew their history. There had to be other soldiers who had good mamas and daddies who told them the stories of the conquest. David can't be the only one who knows about Gath. And you're right. But I submit to you this morning, David's the only one who acted upon his knowledge of Gath. See, it's one thing To know God's word, it's another thing to act upon the knowledge of God's word. 
One of the great challenges for God's people, both then and now, is that we don't believe our beliefs. We don't believe our beliefs. In our story, Israel would have declared, the Lord is living, yet they acted as if God was dead. They would have declared, God is able, yet they acted as if Goliath was bigger than God. And they would have said, God's word is powerful, but they acted as if God's word was powerless. It is only David who actually believed his beliefs. It is only David who said, yes, this is a leftover giant, and according to God's word, I can take him because of my unwavering trust in the Lord. David believed his beliefs. So I'm going to try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf when you and I tried our best to apply this story to our lives I do not think that Goliath represents any and every obstacle in your life. I do not think that Goliath represents any and all obstacles in your life. What I do believe is that Goliath represents any obstacle that stands in contradiction to the word of God. That's Goliath. Anything in your life that stands in contradiction to the promised word of God, you as the child of God have the power and the authority to slay that giant. Let me give you a couple of examples before I sit down. The Bible tells us, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the power of the promised word and yet there are many Christians who question their innocence before God because they're shackled by shame and guilt over their past life. They will say to me, and maybe they said to you, preacher, I don't know if God can forgive me for all that I've done. I don't know if I can forgive myself for all that I've done. And there are people who call themselves Christian and yet they're paralyzed because of their past. And they wonder how do they have a good standing in the sight of God. And oh my friend, if that's you today, I want you to take the stone of scripture that simply declares, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I want you to slay that giant of guilt. The Bible also tells us that salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. And yet, we have far too many conversations with Christians who, because of our culture, are squeezed into religious tolerance where the culture and society tells us to acquiesce to the conviction that we have and to compromise the conviction of our lives. And so we will say, this is my truth, but it may not be your truth. You've got to find your truth and his truth and her truth and their truth. As long as you truly believe it, then it must be true for you. But for me, Jesus is Christ. Oh, my friend, if that's you today, I want you to take the stone of Scripture that says salvation. Salvation is found in no one else. It is only in the name of Jesus. And I want you to slay that giant of religious tolerance in your heart and in your lives. Because Jesus is the only one who's the serum of salvation. He's the only remedy for righteousness for you, for me, or for anybody. It has well been said that if anybody turns away from Christ, they have nowhere else to turn. This morning I want you to slay that giant of religious tolerance with the power of the promised word of God. 
God's word elsewhere says that we ought not to worry. Jesus said, who can add an hour to his life by worrying? The wise preacher has said, why should we worry when we can pray? The smart aleck church member says, why should we pray when we can worry? Because we worry about everything, don't we? We worry about our money. We worry about our mortgage. We worry about our family. We worry about our friends. We worry about our children. We worry about our grandchildren. We worry about our past. We worry about our present. We worry about our future. We worry about our health. We worry about uh, what is coming down the pike. We worry about the test. We worry about the doctor's appointment. We even worry about worry. We worry about everything. Yet this morning, if that describes you, beloved, I want you to take the stone of Scripture that tells us what does it benefits you to worry and I want you to slay that giant of worry and watch it come tumbling down in your life oh the word of God tells us I am convinced that neither death nor life angels or demons the present or the future nor any power nor height nor depth nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And yet I know many godly saints, many people that say they love the Lord, and they question, does God love me? Can God love me? I'm not real sure. I love myself. Can God love me? Does God have a vendetta against me? Why do bad things happen to me? Is it because that something bad can separate me from God? Is it because of something that I've done in my past that now God is meeting out condemnation upon me? Is it the cancer? Is it the disease? Is it the difficulty? Is it the tragedy? Is it the suffering? What's going on? What is separating me from God and his love? Oh, my friend, if that's you, this morning I want you to take the stone of scripture and I want you to slay the giant of doubt that's in your life because God says that I am convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord so you and I come to this story and I want you to walk away with unwavering trust in the Lord I want you to believe your beliefs, be confident in the word that God has given you in Holy Scripture. And I want you to know that the battle belongs to the Lord. It is his. We are his people. And greater is he who is in us than he that's in the world. Greater is he who is in us than the one coming against us. So on this day, have unwavering trust in the Lord. Believe your beliefs and know that the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you trust him? I mean, really, really, do you trust him? Not just with lip, but life. Not just word, but walk. Do you trust him? Today, friend, if you have never placed your trust in Jesus, today can be the day of your salvation. And if you are a baptized believer in the Lord, yet there are times when life comes at you like a rushing, raging river and your trust wavers on this day, I want you to be solidified in the truth of God's word and you say, I'm gonna chase after the heart of God and I wanna be unwavering in my trust of the Lord. Do you believe our beliefs? Are the beliefs that you have in your life yours? Please tell me you have something more than a borrowed belief from mom and dad.
and a borrowed belief from a Sunday school teacher or a borrowed belief from a preacher. Please, this morning, you have a belief that is personal and yours, and you believe your beliefs in Jesus Christ. And the Goliath that you're facing, once again, the Goliath that stands in contradiction to the word of God, today I want you to slay it because the battle belongs to the Lord. And today I want you to hear the Goliath fall with a thunderous noise. I I want you to hear it fall face down dead because God gives you the victory in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. Father, if there's any believer that's struggling, not just against any obstacle, but against those obstacles that stand in contrast to your word, and oh, Father, I pray that today that we will appropriately and accurately slay the giants of our lives so that we can be the people that you've called us to be in your holy scripture. Oh, Father, if there's somebody here for salvation, let them come. Somebody here for prayer, let them come. If there's somebody here in need of a church home, let them come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.